Welcome to Notes from the Field, presented by Canon Press and Noeo Science. For all your homeschool science needs, be sure to check out noeoscience.com. That's N-O-E-O science.com. N-O-E-O science.com. So this is Notes from the Field with Dr. Gordon Wilson. I'm your host, Will Boyd. And we're talking about biodiversity today. This is the show where we explore some aspect of that field at the edge of town or an entire field of study and where we encourage you to get out and do the same. So go explore God's creation. It's complex, it's nourishing, and of course, it is very good. Mm. Yeah. Can't say that enough, right? It's very good. It is very good. Ruminate on that. You can't go wrong when it's from the first chapter of Genesis this is a rough paraphrase. He looked at all that he had made and it, and it was very good. So that's where our starting point is on this wonderful topic. I don't know who exactly coined the term biodiversity, but it's a good word. Yeah, you know? captures a lot. Um, yeah, it's the diversity of life. Some of the first thoughts, as I mentioned, uh, that I have is that we put a lot of different values on different plants and animals. And thankfully, we have put value on a lot of it because it is practical to us. It helps us out. It feeds us. It clothes us. It it, keeps uh, us alive. Yeah. There's all, all sorts of products that we can harvest from nature that benefits us monetarily or in other ways. Uh, and so we do value nature for that when it, it speaks to us in our pocketbook, we can make a living. But then some of that, the value that we have for certain things is often diminished when it doesn't seem to lend itself to practical application, at least right now. So maybe, we're, maybe we are making this very good thing conditional? Yeah, it's sort of conditional. And I think the starting point is not not everything is going to have a practical utilitarian value, but we have to go back to the intrinsic value, which is God saw that he had everything that he had made and it was very good. It's referring to, I mean, it's referring to the universe, but it's also referring to all of the life. A lot of the week was, a lot of the events of the creation week were making living things, plants, animals, birds reptiles, beasts, cattle, and uh, mankind at the end. And so, we have to have our value based on that intrinsic value. It may have practical value 200 years from now. Right. We just haven't discovered that value. Right. Or it may never have a practical value. Um, We probably won't uncover all of the layers of of God's incredible complex design. Um, mm-hmm. given the time we have. Yeah. Yeah. You know, and you think about our house, there's a lot of things in our house that, you know, are of practical value, it, whether it's carpet, wood flooring, chairs, table, lights. But there are a lot of aesthetic things in our house that really have no, you know, the centerpiece on your dining room table, um, a picture on the wall. It's not really doing anything other than being an object that's pleasing to you. Right. And so, we can look at a lot of animals like that. 
plants like that. The tricky thing is when things are not just neutral, or we might not ascribe any aesthetic value to it. It's some brown and gray boring moth that nobody even knows exists. Right. You know, it's not this centerpiece on your dining room table. It's not this beautiful picture over the mantel. It's just a boring moth. And so, who cares? Say, okay, who made it? I guess he cared enough to make it. So. Right. Yeah, no, and a simple look at, at and we and you talk about this a lot uh, with your uh, magnificent of the mundane, this idea that things that are kind of quote-unquote normal to us, if we look at them with new eyes, we start seeing remarkable stuff like a brown moth. Right. Is actually pretty phenomenal. Yeah, and if you put a lot of stuff under the microscope, the dissecting scope, don't want to go into a commercial, but um, it's just great because a lot of things that just seem very blase at the macroscopic level if you put it under the microscope it declares the glory of god so there's just a lot of I, i'd like to hear your thoughts on just some of the other ways that life biodiversity yeah serves us in some ways that aren't so obvious i mean yeah these ones are obvious but. right no i think i think uh if we if we zoom into the home like you were talking we're kind of getting into the realm of utilitarian um values but some other values you mentioned aesthetic you mentioned this inherent or intrinsic value uh there are also some what i would call ecological values mm-hmm. that i think are also practical but they're practical on a very large scale and so uh certain functions that when you have and, and one thing ecologists assume, and I think it's probably right to assume it most of the time, they assume that the higher biodiversity in a region, you're probably going to have a lot more functional and beneficial ecosystem processes. Right. More rich biodiversity, probably better at filtering water and air, mm-hmm. probably better at supporting a very broad range of other creatures. Right. And so some of those ecological services like clean air and clean water production. Right. Yeah. Uh, that's great. Fertile soil for crops. And we take it for granted yeah. often until we lose it. And then we realize, oh my goodness, this ecosystem really does clean up our water. And then we remove it inadvertently, not realizing all the ecological services it's doing. Yeah, that's exactly right. And maybe an easy to see example would be taking a, kind of a broad river plain. And then if for some reason that river is cut into more of a straight channel. Um, Mm -hmm. Mississippi River Delta is kind of a good example of this. Because of need for flood control, because of the need for bringing boats uh, up the river for transportation, the creation of lock and dam systems, there's always a a trade-off. So some some ecosystem values or services have been lost from the Mississippi because of our decision to use them for transportation of, of, of goods and services. And so some of those would be for example, uh, this ability of the river to actually sustain a large flood over a broad plain now would impact a transportation networks tremendously. And so I think one of the most important things, this isn't a diatribe to say we shouldn't do infrastructure projects, but it is to say, hey, let's really take a good look at the landscape. Mm-hmm. How has God designed this landscape to begin with? And how can we do the infrastructure so that we still maximize those things like flood control, clean air, clean water, and fertile soil. Uh, try, to, should, try to have a win-win. Yeah, exactly. With development, anytime we do development, I'm, I'm all for God isn't trying to put the kibosh on all kinds of 
development. Oh, you can't touch. No, we, we are to take dominion and we are to enhance the, you know, services and goods, you know, but I like to use the phrase ecologically circumspect. When you go in and you develop, you don't just, just clear things out of the way with no regard to what's going on there. How can we maximize, how can we minimize and mitigate the damages done in the development? How can we still utilize the services that are intrinsic in that system and still do what we need to do? Yeah. What, what advantages and benefits? There are trade-offs, like you said. Yeah. Uh, um, what advantages does that system have before we even touch it? And mm-hmm. so a thorough understanding yeah. of, of hydrology, how the water works. Fish spawning. Yeah. You know, things like that. Uh, you know, it's, I'm not saying that dams are, <laughs> you know, categorically bad, but when a dam goes in, you need to think about how can we maximize the fish runs. Right. You know, and, and not slap a Band-Aid on this. I mean, it might take a lot of work to uh, still get the, the salmon runs, but too often we, we are not necessarily malicious against some system in nature. We're just sort of ignorant of it. We come in, we set up shop, and then lo and behold, you know, this whole resource, and it's actually a resource. The, the fishing industry is a huge resource, uh, but we, to maximize the one, you know, transportation, we've sacrificed another resource. And so we've got to, those are big, big, big decisions. Right. And I'm glad I'm not the one making them. Uh, so yeah, gonna, it takes a lot of- are not going to make everybody happy. Right. No, that's exactly mm-hmm. right. Um, I think there's some interesting historical examples of where a municipality or, or some other type of local government has had to make a decision about infrastructure. And one of those is what we hear of around here, probably, I'd say quite often, probably lots of the world often hear about needing to upgrade the Need to upgrade the, the water infrastructure, whether it's getting the clean water to people's houses to turn on the tap or whether it's what to do with the gray water afterwards. And I think I was, I remember hearing about this in college for the first time. I was really inspired by this. Uh, New York City had this, as you can imagine, their infrastructure for water is, you know, it's probably trillions of dollars now. Uh, I was going to say billion, but it probably exceeds that now. They were facing the need to uh, have a significant upgrade to be able to deliver a clean, bacteria-free water to millions of people. Um, And so they were facing a big monetary decision of infrastructure changes. um, And what they decided instead was to keep intact uh, a significant portion of the watershed that drained into uh, where New York sits right there on the harbor. And Mm -hmm. so they were able to make a large part of their infrastructure change simply a, really, a stewardship measure. Let's keep this place intact so it keeps filtering the water like it has. And then we can guarantee ourselves that our source is protected and safe and clean. Right. I just think that's a really good illustration right. of being thoughtful. Mm-hmm. And not only on the practical side, but just the whole idea of um, nature or natural spaces, green spaces, just being so important for the, the health and well-being we're we're not just uh disembodied spirits god has given us a body he's given us senses he's given us eyes he's given us ears 
And something that really is uh, healthy for us, particularly those that are Christians and worship God, is to see his creation. And especially in urban settings, it's so important that uh, city developers have green space. And this move towards making our cities city gardens. Yeah. Now, I, I don't think that replaces wilderness and real rural areas where that soothes the soul in ways that Central Park doesn't. But I'm all for parks in the cities where people can go and enjoy the, it's just restorative. Absolutely. Um, to get Absolutely. out in the park and see the wind blowing in the trees. It just does something that uh, walking down a, uh, a, a concrete sidewalk with towering buildings, I mean, that might be cool in other ways, but, you know, that nature is something that restores the soul. And you can see that in Psalm 104 particularly. There's several other psalms, but 104 just where King David is, is just really praising the Lord for all of his care for not only humans, but also for all of the wild creatures and domestic creatures. And it's not just food, but things that are more on the emotional side or no, yeah, I, yeah, no, I right. think that's good. I can't quite yeah, get the word. No, creational, um, maybe. I think, and it's interesting that when you say that, I started thinking about Psalm 104, and then I started thinking about Psalm 23. And just as we, when we get outside and get a little fresh air, and we see some green plants, and we hear some water, just as that's restorative, just thinking about or reading those Psalms and reading about the natural world that God's created, I think also has that restorative effect. That's amazing. I have a question for you. Sure. Can you think of what is the most biodiverse place you've been, and can you kind of describe what, what it was like being there? Well, probably, as far as things to see, Sri Lanka and Ryan the Dance Earth, uh, we went to both the rainforest cloud forests, as well as the dry zone. And, you know, I assume just because of what I've heard that these are the most diverse places. But I've also heard that even the, the temperate rainforests of the Pacific Northwest in the United States is also extremely diverse. It might not have as many big creatures that really showcase the diversity, but a lot right. of microscopic fungi and microbes that are pervading that system. So I would say that's the, that's the place where I saw it the most. And uh, as you had touched on before, the interdependency of life is uh, something that we sort of are unveiling as we get to know more about how all these relationships in nature, we, we see that interdependency and there's redundancy built, <clears throat> excuse me, redundancy built into the system so that if, if one species is lost, the whole thing doesn't implode. And, uh, but that ecosystem is more resilient when the full range of plants and animals are there, fungi. Absolutely. The more we pluck, uh, there's an analogy of the, the rivet analogy, if you pull out a rivet on a plane, 
it'll still fly. But if you keep pulling rivets, eventually the the metal sheeting will come off and and Something you'll start bad to compromise. Yeah, you'll you'll start to compromise the system. So ecosystems are not irreducible, but that doesn't mean that those uh, components aren't needed to make it a stronger, healthier system. So that's an, another thing that we have to keep in mind in uh, the way God made the world. He made it so it's tied together, it's interdependent, and everybody plays a role. Now, what about pests? Pests, those, pests those pesky and, mosquitoes. Yeah, pests. And we're talking about the, the, the benefits weevil. of biodiversity. Well, a lot of times creatures just really have very little to commend themselves. Um, <laughs> as far as our... That's a generous way to put it. Yeah. They like just, it seems like everything about them is a, a threat for life or uh, health or it's a, an annoyance. And how do we work that into our theology of yeah. biodiversity? I mean, probably a, a means of sanctification, if, yeah. if nothing else, or maybe for starters. Yeah. And uh, that, that is interesting. I was reading an article today about a study researching a species of mosquito in Africa and how one subspecies seems to be attracted to uh, very furred mammals. And one species is, or one subspecies is very attracted to humans. Made me curious, how and why did this come to be the case? Well, we, you know, that's a different, different question about the, the whole fall. That's another whole right. can of worms uh, or can of parasitic worms. Uh, there's <laughs> nematodes. A of, there's, a, <laughs> there's a lot, a lot of, of bad <laughs> things out there. Natural, we call it natural evil. But just from a practical standpoint, because they've, they are definitely higher on the list of the cursedness of creation you know they they are causing all sorts of wreaking a lot of havoc how do we how do we view them um do we say that they should be annihilated are there other roles that they play do we try to restore them you know what's the nature of their pest existence right is it because we're exercising dominion poorly and I, I would say that a lot of times pests are because we've often these imbalances that cause one species to get annoyingly abundant is because of something we've done. And then we've, we've caused the problem. And then we're mad at this creature for being so awful. Yeah, they might be awful, but take a look back. Have I caused this? I think we need to look at the whole realm of the biology of the whole natural history of that creature. Is it completely just bad all around? Or is there something that is, is beneficial? Right. Are there, are there any benefits to mosquitoes? Well, fish food. Yeah. Bird food. Bat food. Yeah. So. There's a lot of, you know, a thing about thistles, you go to a, a farmer's field of wheat and you see all of this huge stands of Canadian thistle or bull thistle, but you go buy bird food and, and I don't, it's a different species, but there's uh, thistle seed. Uh, my wife's been buying 
thistle seed for our bird feeder. I'm thinking, well, maybe that same thistle somewhere, maybe it's a nicer thistle, but, you know, somewhere on this planet, that thistle might be... Probably feeding a goldfinch somewhere. Gold, well, or the or bad another. side, but some might curse it and say, Oh, right, ah, right. This is just awful. You think of other things like... Um, so, usually pesters, because it's gotten out of hand, it's gotten outside of our control, sometimes because of our own stupid fault. And we need to just look at the bigger picture, bigger context, and does that species have a role to play? I'm all for controlling the pest. I'm not saying in some sentimental way, you know, don't touch it. It's God's creature. No, we can, we can hunt, we can fish, we can kill pests. But we have to, we have to think not just selfishly. We have to think, what's the big picture? One of my favorite analogies that I try to give <clears throat> my biology students when, when introducing the idea of biodiversity to them is imagining um, kind of setting foot into a jungle from some really cultivated area, You're setting foot into the jungle. And at first glance, for a lot of us, especially a lot of us in the northern temperate zone, where there's, there's lower biodiversity, um, and our, our forests uh, tend to be a little less wild. I think one of the initial responses or initial uh, perceptions is that this place is just a, a mess. It's messy in here. There's no order to it. It seems chaotic. And I and then I encourage my students to think about that. And could it be, and this is just a premise, I don't have a lot of, I don't have any analysis to back this up, but could it be that... It's looking messy to our eyes because it's so absolutely chock full of diverse species that you just can't contain it. It's like a, it's like a messy hedgerow. You can have a really tight cultivated lawn or hedgerow and it's going to look pretty and symmetrical. But if you let that thing go wild for a couple of years, you're going to double your biodiversity. Mm -hmm. And so yeah. I think that in, initial impression of messiness, yeah. some people... That causes anxiety for them. Right. You know, they really want uh, things very tight and, and at 90s. Um, and so maybe just a reminder, that's fine to do for your lawn, but just remember that. The creatures benefit when we can let things slop over a bit. Yeah. Yeah, I was thinking when we are only thinking about ourselves, you mentioned hedgerows. Uh, in this country, we just don't see hedgerows. We join field to field. And that's sad. In England, you have these very big hedgerows, which form a lot of habitat for a lot of creatures in England. Here, you know, usually an uncultivated part is usually just too steep to run a combine on. Right. <laughs> combine on. And uh, basically, it's just, we would have cultivated it if we cut it. Right. Instead of thinking, hey, let's have habitat corridors for wildlife and it's just something that again we're not thinking holistically about it yeah Build, building that into the calculus of when we make some type of land management or, or infrastructure decision how can we maximize god's creation while still solving a problem that we need to or making this the most suitable work environment or or fertile field for a certain crop I think I was uh, initially 
introduced to the, the phrase biodiversity probably by one of E.O. Wilson's books. I think he has one by that name. Famous ecologist. I'm sure we'll talk yeah. about him from time to time. He was a, he was a myrmecologist, yeah. studied ants. Yeah, that's a diverse. And if you want a quick way to get a, a sampling of diversity, one thing that's really fun to do, especially this time of year, uh, summertime, when the insect world is thriving and they're, they're about to start beating back the plants as they battle to the end of the growing season, um, is putting down uh, some type of drop cloth uh, under a tree or under a shrub. And one of the techniques that ecologists use is they, uh, sometimes they actually use toxic gases to do this, um, but you can use physical means. They, they, they shake that tree and they get every single insect they can, they can try to get out of that tree onto the cloth. Um, and in some of those jungle uh, places, the number of species is just uncountable if yeah. from a single tree. And the old days, it, you know, the entomologists would be flitting through the, the jungles with a net and a pith helmet. And, but now they've realized, let's get more efficient about this. And so they string up these big nylon funnels underneath the big rainforest tree. And do quick breakdown insecticide, fog the tree, and then countless insects of many species, some new, would fall down into this funnel. Then the and the it would funnel it all into jars of alcohol. That's uh, an industrial way for insect collection. <laughs> right? And yeah, it's it's amazing. No more, but yeah. Kind of, like, kind of like the days of the shotgun naturalist with, yeah. with, with ornithology. John but James the, Audubon. Yeah, it was quick breakdown so that the tree is pretty much repopulated pretty quickly. And just thinking about a lot of unsung unsung heroes. There's, there's the, the big, cute, furry things that we love, like um, the giant panda bear. Charismatic megafauna. Charismatic megafauna. Things that are big, things that are appealing. Fluffy. Fluffy, cute, but there's lots of things that are that really never come on our radar, especially the maybe biologists, but you're just Joe layperson doesn't know it exists, but it's really forming the foundational layer of the whole biosphere, so we think about the oceans and the uh the phytoplankton. Phytoplankton are the plankton just means wanderer, or they're free floating at the mercy of the currents. And plankton can be zooplankton, which are animal plankton. And then phytoplankton are their algal or algae. Much of it is microscopic and uh, like diatoms, dinoflagellates, coccolithophores, uh, all sorts of things that are photosynthetic. And if you think about it, the charismatic megafauna, like the whales, the whale sharks, you know, the, the big animals, their livelihood is dependent on the microscopic organisms that fill the ocean. If you remove those microscopic organisms, the whole system would crash because they say, well, wait, whales eat, they don't eat the phytoplankton. No, but they might eat the zooplankton, and the zooplankton eats the phytoplankton. Or they might eat fish, and the fi well, the fish eat the 
zooplankton or uh, plankton. And, and then, you know, it's the base of the food chain. So, and this phytoplankton also produces half of the world's oxygen yeah. that we breathe. So, what I mean is that a lot of the diversity that we don't even see is supporting the things that we do see, the things <laughs> that we do like. And we would be really bummed if, if our big game fish disappeared, but we don't, care. we don't care about the other stuff until someone spells out the connections. Right. And goes, hey, you know that big muskie that you like to fish for? Well, let's look at the food chain. Right. And take it all the way back to all sorts of obscure creatures that we often think have no purpose. They do have a purpose. Yeah. So, yeah, there's so much you know, for pharmaceuticals. Most of our pharmaceuticals have been originally plant-derived and some animal-derived. So, just, you know, a whole host of things. Biodiversity is glorious and don't think of it as a word. It might have been coined by a secular ecologist but the earth is the lord's and the fullness thereof and uh it's god's and need to realize that amen he said it was very good the thing i can't resist to touch on here um is that i think that uh title ride in the dance really captures a lot of what we were talking mm -hmm. about today too when you see when you see swarming creatures that it can seem like a riot and when considering all of these remarkable relationships interdependent creatures mm -hmm. that sustain a food web it's it's an incredibly well choreographed dance yeah definitely and that sort of echoes the the nature of the pre-fall world we see enough of that god's glory god's invisible qualities the eternal power and divine nature but clearly seen even though it's been uh bent it's been uh warped it's been twisted by the fall we see all the predators, parasites, pathogens that have wrought a lot of havoc. It's still, yeah, there's that riot and the dance. And I've touched on a few things, but some of the things that I've talked about are from the book, A Different Shade of Green, A Biblical Approach to Environmentalism and the Dominion Mandate. And we've touched on a few of those things, but I go into a lot more detail. Yeah, please check that book out and, uh, and ride in the dance, of course, from uh, all it can impress. But just an encouragement to parents out there raising little ones, uh, little, little kids often have a innate desire to just get out there and see nature, look at nature, and really cultivate that. Don't squelch it. Don't put a lid on it. Yeah, you can still maintain house rules of cleanliness but don't quench that innate desire to see nature it's something that we need to cultivate in our children and although not all will grow up to be biologists there's going to be a fraction of those kids that are out there in the mud and dirt and sticks and catching slugs and snails and grasshoppers and frogs and snakes uh, some of those kids will grow up to be our future biologists and we want them uh, if they're called to be biologists or ecologists, we want them to do it under the lordship of Jesus Christ and giving him glory, uh, not adding to the panzer division of secular science. Amen.
Hey, thanks for joining us, everybody. Get out in the field, and we'll see you next time. All right. Thanks, Will. Thanks, Gordon. Bye. Bye.